So we're in 2 Corinthians, and in 2 Corinthians, Paul has had to, to correct some false teaching, and he's defending his ministry, and it's just a glorious autobiographical sketch that takes some, some side roads and some inroads and some rest stops along the way. Paul is, is writing with great passion. But he says in chapter 11, verse 4, that these false teachers preach a different Christ. They preach a, a different spirit. They preach a different gospel. And part of what they did is they were, they, they were detractors regarding the apostle Paul. And, and he, he says that in chapter 10, he says, they, they say this about me. They say, his letters are weighty and strong and his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. He's not much to look at. He's hard to understand. And he's not a very good speaker. They, so they, they just blasted the apostle Paul. And he steps back and he says this in verse 12, right after that statement. He says, uh, not that we dare to, to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. These guys had letters of introduction. They talked about how wonderful they were. He says, but, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Or they are not wise. That's an understatement. Whenever you start comparing yourselves with other people and you are the judge and the advocate and the jury, you're not wise. First of all, don't compare. Don't compare. But then when you start comparing yourselves and you judge yourself, you're not wise. You know, when I start comparing myself with other people, I win. I win. I win. I was thinking about, you know, your, there's a little country called Liechtenstein, just 61 square miles, 35,000 people, country. And what if you're on their Olympic training committee, and you have your annual meeting, and you sit around saying, how many medals have we won in the Olympics? Well, n none. If only we had better training facilities, we would win the gold medals. Everybody says, you're right, because Lichtensteiners, however you say Lichtensteiners, are brave and vigorous. No, you wouldn't. You're from Lichtenstein. You have 35,000 people. You're not going to win a medal. Or how about this? Husbands, I'll pick on us. Your wife corrects you on something that you have not done, which happens to a few men here occasionally, probably. And, and really... You don't say this if you've been married a few years. You learn not to say these things, but you think this. I, I, I may not be doing right, but there's a guy in Wisconsin I read about last week that's married to four different women. I'm better than he is. You're lucky. <laughs> you see, I'm telling you, when, when, when I play the comparison game, I win. And so Paul says, you know, great understatement, when they compare themselves to each other and commend themselves about one another, they are not wise. And he says in chapter 10, verse 17, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who compares or commends himself who is approved, but is the one whom the Lord commends. It says, our, our boasting is in the Lord. And so we'll go back to chapter 4, and we pick up this statement. After understanding that, we say, read this, chapter five, 4, verses 5 and 6. 
For what we preach or proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the glory of God, of the knowledge of God, and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So God who said, let the light shine out of darkness in the very beginning has shown past tense in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, so my question as I look at this is, how is Paul able to say, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord? I'm going to say three things. Number one is, he, instead of playing the comparison game and talking about body image and talking about elocution and talking about giftedness, he boasts in the Lord. He glories in the Lord. He says he follows Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, follow me as I follow Christ. He says, I'm going to boast in the Lord. In, 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 in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul just couldn't get over grace. He, he just he could not get over the grace of God. Listen to this. This is, he says, but, but, but I receive mercy for this very reason. He says, even though I'm the foremost of all sinners, I receive mercy for this very reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then he just says to the king of kings, king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul says, I'm the foremost of sinners, but God showered his grace upon me. He couldn't get over grace. And, and so instead of commending and comparing and, and holding up a mirror, he just said, let's follow Christ. Therefore, he says, for what we preach is not ourselves, but we preach Jesus. He says, he said, the, the glory of grace is this grace is the grace that, that saves, delivers, and builds. He traces that out in, in 2 Corinthians. The grace that saves, delivers, and builds. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I am an apostle by the will of God. Grace and peace to you. This, this grace saves. This, this grace delivers. Chapter 1, verse 10. Listen. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again and again and again. The God who did deliver will deliver again and again. He saves, he delivers, and he builds his kingdom. Chapter 2, verse 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the aroma of him everywhere we go. He saves, he delivers, he builds. I was thinking of that in light of uh, Psalm 92. Listen to verses 12 through 15. It says this. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and glow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted, see, planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. 
They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and they are green to declare that the Lord Jehovah is upright. He is my rock and there's no unrighteousness in him. Listen to these words, flourish, grow, planted, flourish again, bear fruit, ever full of sap and they are green. The Lord saves, he delivers, and he builds. I just don't, Paul never got over grace. He says in chapter 4, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers. They cannot see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Then he says, but God has spoken to us. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts. Paul's defending his calling in, in Acts 26, and he says that God called me to himself to, to, to preach the gospel, to, to turn people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. And I'm sure Paul had this thought, as we have, why has God been so merciful to me? Paul says, I'm the foremost of sinners. Paul says, you know, I was going, I was breathing, breathing out persecutions and murderous threats to the church. Murderous threats. And God saved me. Why didn't he just, why did, why did he just strike me dead? That's what I deserved. He saved me to proclaim the good news, to call people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. Now, why has God saved us? To proclaim his name. For we preach not ourselves, but we just preach Jesus. We, that's, that, that's what we do. He, he, he saves and, and he, he delivers and he cares grace. Grace pours into our life in all types of situations. I, the thing about 2 Corinthians is so striking. It just goes everywhere. But 2 Corinthians 1 says this about grace and deliverance and building. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions, our pain, our disappointments with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He, he comforts us in our affliction, in any affliction. See, he, he saves, He delivers, He builds. There is a, a book I'm, I'm reading now, I'm almost finished with it. It's, it's a wonderful book. It's by Tim Keller. I just, he just writes a book every two months, it seems like. Lately. And I have to buy them. Sometimes people send, seriously, they send me books. And I, I told him one time, why don't you ever send books to me? You know? He just laughed. But it's, it's entitled Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. It is phenomenal. It's phenomenal. Let me just read an example. He said he interviewed a psychologist who was a Christian, I think at a university, professor. 
He related this story. He says, Greg was a young assistant college professor who went through a horrific time. And he said that uh, his wife left him for another man, taking their two young children with them. This young father faced years of legal expense and fights over the custody of their children. Eventually, he won custody, but then found himself a single parent with a full-time, poor-paying job as an assistant professor. He had almost no hope of finishing the book on which his academic career depended, and he worried about the mental health of his children. For several months, the psychologist visited with Greg and discovered that many people had rallied around him. He had learned how his church helped him with meals and child care and strong emotional and spiritual support and had grown in his faith. His parents had sold their home in the West and moved nearby to help raise the children. And then after relating all of this, this individual asked Greg a question. He said, Greg said something so powerful, I almost choked up. He observed how in the middle of many operas, there's a crucial aria, a sad and moving solo, in which the main character turns sorrow into something beautiful. And then this young man said, this is my moment to sing the aria. I don't want to. I don't want to have this chance. But it's here now. And what am I going to do about it? Am I going to rise to the occasion? And we counted how in this post-traumatic experience there was growth. And he talked about his life and how he's trusting the Lord and going for it. I read that and I thought, you know, God saves, he delivers, and he builds. We boast in the Lord. And I, I thought of the number of people I know who have hit incredible horrible situations and they've embraced the pain they've embraced the pain in part saying we comfort others with the comfort we are now receiving from the Lord they don't run from the pain they don't deaden the pain with, with endless alcohol or substance abuse they walk through it and, and it's, it's, it's just it's just amazing to me. I can trust God the Father, Paul says here, even in the dark. How, how are you able to say what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord? You see the God who delivers, the God who's grace, and the God who builds. The second thing in this, in the text now is that they said that his letters are, are weighty. They're just weighty. They're hard to understand. And Paul, that's why I think Paul's time said, no, 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 really, let me just, let me just say that I, I'm going to disagree with these super apostles who teach self-salvation. You're saved by what you do as you obey certain postulates and formulas. He says, I, I have a very simple message. In church at Corinth, I told you about a year and a half ago in the letter that I previously wrote to you that you have in your hand that we have here, the Bible, called 1 Corinthians. I, I, I told you that my message was, was just 
very, very simple. Let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians 2, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come, excuse me, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, see, elocution, whatever, For, for I decided to know nothing while I was among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He trembled. I don't want to misrepresent Christ. And my speech and my message were, in, were not implausible words of wisdom with rhetorical flares, but, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of the power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You say, we say, well, step back and say, what does he mean here? But my, I came to you in, in, in power and in a demonstration of the Spirit. He preached Jesus. Because it says in chapter 1 that Jesus Christ has become for us our redemption, sanctification, and redemption. So it is written. Here's his favorite refrain. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul, Paul says, no, you know, the message, one reason I can say we preach Christ and Him crucified because that's the message. We just keep it simple. We, we just preach the cross. We don't preach ourselves, you see. We preach Jesus as Lord. We, we proclaim it. We say it. We don't teach self-salvation. I read this recently. There's a story about a man who was uh, having a, a public open presentation of the gospel with all comers and questions. He was at a university in Sydney, Australia. This really hit me. So he presented the gospel and says, during the question and answer, as I was trying to explain the points of what I was trying to communicate with Christ and Him crucified, a, a Muslim man rose up there at the University of Sydney to explain how preposterous it was that the creator of the universe would be subjected to the forces of his own creation that he would have to sleep, eat, and go to the toilet, let alone die on a cross. And the speaker said this young man was intelligent, cogent, and very civil. He said the man went on to argue that it was illogical that God, the cause of all causes, or the primary mover, or the original truth of all truth, whatever you want, the, the one who is distant, you know, distant, could have pain inflicted on him by any lesser beings. And the minister, campus minister, felt he had no knockdown argument, no witty comeback, so he finally simply thanked the man for making the uniqueness of the Christian claim so clear. And then he said this. This is, this is, this is good. What the Muslim denounces as blasphemy, the Christian holds precious. Our God has wounds. <laughs> Our God has wounds. That's the message. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. But when he came, he didn't come with a scepter in his hand. He had nails put in his hand. He didn't come with a conquering spear. He had a spear thrust in his side. I, I, 
That's why Martin Luther said that the, the greatest statement of, in, the, in all the Scripture is when Jesus cried on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our God has wounds. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus is Lord. It really is the, the upside-down kingdom. I mean, just think about it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who persecuted for righteousness' sake. There's the kingdom of heaven. It's the upside-down kingdom. See, you're, we keep the message simple. It's about Jesus. It's about the cross. Um, this week I was reading about um, uh, an individual. Skip a couple of these. This guy. This guy's name is Mark Cuban. I know nothing about him besides biographical sketches. I've heard him speak for several years. He's uh, incredibly gifted. Uh, he's the owner of the Dallas Mavericks. He grew up in a very middle-class home, was a kind of a computer on the edge of the computer development and internet and made a ton of money. He, 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 he bought the, the Dallas Mavericks for $285 million dollars in 2004 from um, who's the guy ran for president, the third party person IBM dude, what's his name? Ross Perot, yeah, Ross Perot um, but I just thought about him because he was in the paper this week uh, he was cleared of insider trading there's an article that says that um, suppose he had a conversation with the SEC Security Exchange Commission said he had a, a conversation on June the 28th that allowed him to have some insider trading and make millions of dollars. And uh, so they fined him several million dollars, and, and he could have paid it because his legal fees exceeded that, but he wanted to fight for what he thought was right. It says, this is Wall Street Journal, the stakes for Mr. Cuban were relatively small. He faced a fine of only several million dollars. Well, for, and for him, that's not that much. Or roughly what he had, this is interesting, this is mostly, or roughly what he has paid in fines for criticizing NBA officials the last 10 years. <laughs> it says, after the verdict, Mr. Cuban's uh, legal team and other supporters exchanged hugs and shouted expletives. Um, I, I don't know anything about him, but I, I would suggest to you that if you went into a business meeting with Mr. Cuban and his friends, and you read the Sermon on the Mount and said, this is the way you live life, they would laugh you out of the room. Even if you said, well, there's a guy from Cornell who just wrote a book a few years ago said entitled Lead Like Jesus named Ken Blanchard. I mean, there's some people who trumpet that, but they, they don't buy that. And we're surrounded by a culture that, that shouts expletives when they win, and, and we, we have to fight to be people of faith. So you see, the world says self-salvation. 
we say it's only the cross. The world says it's up to me, we say it's only the grace of God. And so, so how, how do you stand and stay as a person who says, we don't preach ourselves, but we preach Jesus. It's you, you, you glory in the greatness of God. You keep the message central, the gospel. And then Paul says this in verse 3, or excuse me, verse 6, he says, for, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. He has shown, past tense, he saved us by the cross. He's preaching to Christians, of course. He has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So we keep, we keep, we just keep it before us. Is God shining in your heart continuously to give you the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ? It is very difficult to be prideful or arrogant or lustful or unforgiving when you stand at the foot of the cross and you see the Savior suffering for your sin. For God, who said, let the light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Do you, do you see that, church? I, I, it's so interesting when you study the Bible, for example, in the book of Romans, and you know this, but in Romans 1 through 11, Paul is just hammering the gospel. Just hammering the gospel. It's glorious. Talk, talk, you know, talks, talks about our sin. He says, in the fullness of time, what, what the law could not do, God did by his son on the cross. He's the propitiation for our sin. And he says, God demonstrates his love for us that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The, the, the whole eighth chapter of Romans is just an exclamation. It's just a glory in the gospel, glory in the gospel. And then chapters 9 to 11 is the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of election, the, the mystery of his eternal redemption, God's heart and cry for the people of Israel. And, and then you come to chapter 12. After, after all of this incredible, glorious gospel building, and he says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then listen to this. I'm going to read it fast because it, it, to me, it's, like, it's really like a drinking from a fire hydrant. It says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Verse 3, but think with a, a sober judgment. Then he talks about our giftedness in the body of Christ. And then he says this, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own, own sight, but re repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of God, if possible. 
So far as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For he has said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You see, it's like drinking out of a fire hydrant. But you get there because you spent time in chapters 1 through 11 just bathing yourself in the gospel. So if you, if you just jump into chapter 12, verse 9, without going through chapter 1 through 11, I, you're probably going to say, how in the world seek to show hospitality? As much as depends upon you, be at peace with all men. How in the world? Do not avenge yourselves, my brothers. Associate with the lowly. Bless those who persecute. How in the world? Your gospel saturated. See, you're gospel-saturated. You live out of the greatness of the grace of Christ. And you, you live here, and it gives you equilibrium. Um, last night... I was so excited about the game that I had no appetite. Really, when I don't have an appetite, that never happens. And the, the only good news is that I was able to go to bed before halftime. <laughs> That's the only good news from last night. I, I was just able to say, well, I'm going to bed. So I had a really good night's rest. Woke up at 3 o'clock, 2.30, as is my habit. My wife was awake. And she says something that was very profound. Well, first of all, we started watching the game. See, she could be awake because we start watching any athletic contest. Five minutes into it, my wife is sleeping. She comes in and out of sleep as we scream and pound. And it was fun. I was able to watch the game with my son. Such a joy. A 29-year-old son almost. And well, it was a joy until the game started. But, but this morning at 3.30, she says, you know, I feel so sorry for those boys. And she said, but, but you know, it, it shows us we should not give good things. And this, sports are a good thing. Too much emotional weight. I went, yeah. <laughs> She's right. I, it was, listen, last night was a disappointment to me. And Tennessee's field goal was a disappointment to me. Disappointment. People going to hell is a tragedy. Marriages breaking up is a tragedy. People walking away from the Lord is a tragedy. So I think really when you know Christ, it gives you equilibrium. Even on mornings of disappointment. So when you hear the gospel, this is from a little book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I'm rereading the Chronicles of Narnia. It's just so much fun. In this story, the children have gone into Narnia through a wardrobe. There are four children never been there before, 
In this magical kingdom, there is a great lion named Aslan who represents Jesus Christ. So fairly early in the book, they're having a conversation with some of the first people they meet in Narnia who are talking beavers. And Mr. Beaver says, they say Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he's already landed. It's the first time the children have heard the name Aslan. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Peter, the oldest, felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. Lucy, the youngest, got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Edmund, who had betrayed them to the White Witch, felt a sensation of mysterious horror. I just thought of the hymn, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in our believer's ear. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds. Now, it just is the gospel message of Jesus a melodious strain of music to you? Does the name of Jesus bring hope to you? Huh? Does the gospel make you want to sing and dance and shout? You know, I, I don't want you to miss this. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, period. Now, if you study this passage, most commentaries would say everybody would think Paul stops there. But then he says this, and this is what is absolutely amazing. We preach Jesus in ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. The word there really means slave. We preach Christ. As we preach Christ, we are your servants for Jesus' sake. As we preach Christ, not ourselves, are we servants? Who are people in your life that you say, I I will serve them for the glory of Christ? Paul says about the church of Galatia, he says, I'm once again in the pains of childbirth for you. In Colossians 1, he says, we labor with all of the energy within us so that we may present you complete in Christ, but we labor. I just thought, you know, God, teach me to love more. Romans 10.1, he says, My heart's prayer and desire for my countrymen is that they come to faith in Christ. Now, now listen to me. Who, who are you willing to serve and lose sleep for as you care for or even pray for them in the name of Christ? 
It would be so much easier if Paul just said, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, period. That would be so much easier. Yeah. Keep the Gospels. And, and ourselves as your servants. Your servants for Jesus' sake. Why? For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus. Hmm. Servants for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. <clears throat> or there are many of us sitting here today who can point to people who loved us and prayed for us and cared for us when we were haughty and self-satisfied. Others can think of times when we were so low we could barely move and people came beside us. So I, I just pray that we would be a 2 Corinthians 4 or 5 group of people. We don't preach ourselves but Jesus is Lord. Let us get the message right. But let us live it out. And ourselves, as your servants, your slaves, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So are there people here today who are in places where they are living out servants for Jesus' sake? I pray you give them fresh energy. They're in a hard place. A hard place. But I pray that all of us would, would look around at our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers and our family and, and just pray that we would be servants to other people for the name and the sake of Jesus. Um, I pray that the name of Christ w would be a strong tower for us. And that the name of Christ would be like music to our ears. Oh God, make that real, I pray. We bless your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.